introduction to the book of Malachi last week. And when he did, he dealt with the prophet's opening salvo in a series of questions that are meant not only for the interest of ancient Israel, but for the true Israel of God in all generations. Paul, in the book of Galatians and elsewhere, reminds us very clearly that you that believe are the covenant sons and daughters of Abraham. And those sons and daughters are joined with him in belief of the, of the truth in faith. In Galatians 3.7, Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then in verse 29, he says again, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. It couldn't be any more clearly said than it's said in those three verses, that the true Israel is the Israel of faith. So when we look at the word of God, we need to have that perspective in mind, particularly when we look into the prophets, the minor prophets of the Old Testament. Now, your initial impression of this minor prophet's work might leave you wondering just how practical it's going to be for you here in the 21st century. I mean, this was written a long time ago in a culture that is far different than ours. So is there really something here that's going to apply to me living now in this time? Those doubts arise in our minds and in our hearts when we lose sight of the testimony of the word of God itself, which tells us that the whole of Scripture, the whole of it, is breathed out by God, including this book of Malachi, and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so we want to look at this prophecy in that character not trying to make an assessment of it on the basis of whether we think it's an ancient book and I live in modern times. But the way we want to look at it is, what is God trying to say to me, what is he saying to me in this portion of his word that will equip me and prepare me to serve him? And so with that in mind, I want to encourage you to, rather than approaching this book as a curiosity from the ancient past, it might be a good idea to tighten your seatbelts because this is a very important book. This is a book that looks very carefully at the life of those who profess to be God's people, who profess to be believers, who profess to be people who are trusting in the Lord and are living by his word. It also reflects on the service of the Christian. And it does so by bringing up questions that are raised by the lifestyle and the thinking of those who are addressed and requiring them by counter questions 
to assess things seriously among those who claim to be the servants or the servant slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ or of the Lord himself. And beloved, when the Lord begins to make inquiry into the hearts of his people by his word in any generation, among young people or older people alike, it is a penetrating inquisition. The Lord is going to confront you with these questions that he's confronting his people with here. It's going to hit deep. It's going to be serious. And that's why I say we might want to tighten our seatbelts. Because it's not something that we're going to be able to just blow through and come out on the other side and say, wasn't that interesting to study that history? It's not going to be that way, believe me, if the Lord works in our hearts together. As was pointed out last week by Mr. Brillhart, we're looking here at Malachi's burden, delivered in the name of the Lord. And not just for one time and for one generation, but for the profit of God's people for all time since it was delivered. And John Trapp, the Puritan commentator, gives a beautiful description of the prophet's burden. He says, God has enjoined and imposed upon the prophet to utter, to cry aloud and spare not, to lift up his voice as a trumpet, etc., straining every vein in his heart to do it, exclaiming lustily against sin and sinners and proclaiming hellfire for them in case they amend not. That's a great description, I think, of the prophet's burden. Jeremiah, as we talked on the retreat with the boys, Jeremiah said, the word of God is like fire in my bones. I can't, I've got this message and I have to bring it forward and I have to proclaim it and I have to set it before God's people and do it with all seriousness and all good and prayerful intent. Now, from the very first question onward, The conscience is addressed in this prophecy, and the heart is probed. Mr. Brillhart broached the first question, or broached the first question, I should say, last week. So look at the first, uh, verses 2 and 3. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau have I hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Christians, I want to right away begin by asking you, have you ever asked this question of the Lord? How have you loved me? And I don't want you to be mincing words because lots of times that's what people do to avoid the probe of the word of God. So they'll say something like, well, I never said that. I never turned to the Lord and said, how have you loved me? I've not done that. that those words have never been in my mouth or in my mind. Beloved, we need to understand that every time we doubt the promise of God to us, all the promises of God to us in Christ, 
we are asking this question in one form or another. Anytime we've been in a position where we've doubted what's been promised to us in the Lord because we've had to wait a long time or because things aren't going the way we think they ought to go, we're asking this question in a little different form, but it's the same thing. All of you have turned to the gospel who are believers here. And in that gospel, above all the things that you've heard, you have heard Jesus say to you, I love you. Because that's the message of the gospel. I love you. That's, that's the whole purpose in his coming. The whole purpose in his sacrifice is out of love to you and for your redemption. And so in that very message of the gospel, he has turned to you and said, I love you. But then doubts and fears enter in. You stop looking at him and his promises. And often we start looking at ourselves. And when we do that, we put his word in doubt. Men and women will say, well, when I do that, it's not really his love that I'm questioning, but mine for him. That's what I doubt. But beloved, I would submit to you, that's not the issue, is it? This isn't about your love for him. It's about his love for you. I hate to tell you this. Well, I really don't hate to tell you it. But I feel burdened to express it. Your love is doubtful. Your love is doubtful. You're good to doubt it. That's a good thing. Because your love is doubtful. If this salvation that the Christian hopes for rests in the sincerity and the integrity of our love for Christ, then we are all doomed. And I stand here to tell you, I'm the first to say it. If that's what it rests on, if that's what it depends on, I am doomed. Every time I read the Savior's synopsis of the law, I groan within my heart. Is there a single believer here, a single soul here, who will stand up and say, I'm secure because I know and I can declare that I love God with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind and with all my strength. Is there anybody here who's going to volunteer to stand up and say that? That's me? I don't think so. If you are, I want to have a talk with you. So what is it then? Are we all lost then? Are we all doomed and lost? Certainly not. And why not? Because in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the sacrifice for our sins. That's where we see love. That's what the real character and power of love is. It's in the love that Christ shows to us. God has, as Trapp says, 
translated your sin upon Christ, has caused your sin to pass over to him. And, as it were, by a writ of removal, taken away the burden of it from you and from your conscience and from your soul and from your life, and he placed it on his son at the cross. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand here, and I don't think the prophet Malachi does either, that our love for the Lord is something we need to be constantly watching over. I'm not saying you don't have to be concerned about your love for the Lord. We do. And it's important that we have our eyes upon it. We need to constantly be praying for the Lord to renew that love in us, to maintain the heart and the strength of that love in us. There can be no doubt about that. That's why redeemers sing, and they do it with joy, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. And then there's that verse, and it's a beautiful verse in this hymn. Let sorrow do its work. Send or come grief and pain. Sweet are thy messengers. Sweet their refrain. When they sing with me. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. The psalmist says in Psalm 31 and verse 23, Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. The first part of that is a, is a strong command. Love the Lord, you his saints. So we have that obligation on us. But what we're dealing with here in the opening part of Malachi is recognizing his love for us. And it's his love for us that gives birth to and strength to our love for him. And while our love is doubtful, there is never any legitimate reason to doubt his love for you. Once he has called you, once he has made you his own, Once you hear those words in the gospel by which he pledges his love to you, and then he seals them in your heart by the Spirit, through faith. From then on, our confidence, your confidence, should rest in him, his word, his promise. The love he has for you predates the earth, the existence of the earth. His love for you sent him into this world in the person of his son to die for you. His love for you secured your justification. His love for you brought you out of the grave with the Savior. His love for you works for your sanctification and his love for you works all things together for your good. And nothing can separate you from his love for you. Not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or even the sword. No, not death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. (coughs) Excuse me. Not powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.
That's the promise that we have. That's the love we bask in. But notice how he puts it here in Malachi. He says, you ask how I love you? I loved you. What he literally says here, we can understand it this way. I loved you by not leaving you to yourself. I loved you by not leaving you to your works, but by choosing you and making you my own. I have loved you, Jacob. That's the force of what he says here. That pronoun's taken out, but the force is in there in the original. I have loved you, Jacob. I have loved you. And it's to separate it from Esau. They were brothers. But it's you I have chosen to love. And in the context, as Mr. Brillhart pointed out, you have the very real illustration as it refers to the sons of Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. He says in that second verse, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved you, Jacob. Your God says, I was free to choose any. I was free to choose any. You don't think he chose Jacob because he was better than Esau, do you? If you do, go back and read the story. And see if you see in, in, in Jacob that kind of character that would make God fix on him. It's not there. He says, I was free to choose any, but I looked on Abraham and chose him. And I was free to choose either of his sons and his children's children. But I chose to love you, Jacob. Now, neither the Bible nor its theology teach any sort of obligation on God's part to be merciful aside from his own will. And I hope everyone here who is a believer this morning recognizes that. That not the Bible or our theology teaches that there was any sort of obligation on God's part to be merciful aside from his own free will. You realize, beloved... If God had chosen none of the fallen race of men and women, he would still be a merciful God. He would still be a God of infinite love. It wouldn't have changed that. If he had chosen not to choose any, it wouldn't change who he is as God. He would still be a God of love. He would still be a God of mercy, even though he chose not to act in the behalf of any. Because that's who he is as God. But what a wonderful thing that he should make himself known to you and me by his love. That he should bring us in as a part of those who have the faith of Abraham and bring us into the covenants and promises and choose us to that, select us to that. It's you I have loved, the Lord is saying. So when that question comes up in our mind and heart, Lord, have you loved me? 
The answer the Lord back is, it's you I have loved. I haven't left you to yourself. I haven't left you to your works. I haven't left you to death and sin, but secured you through the grace delivered through my son. Trap calls election to eternal life the sweetest and surest seal of God's love. When he grants us the faith to believe, followed by the sanctification of the Spirit, this is how we may know from certain, for certain that we are loved. That we believe this message. That we believe that when God says that he loves us through his gospel, we believe that that applies to us. Not generically as a group, but as an individual. Do you see, beloved, that by merely giving you exposure to the message of the gospel, God has shown his love to you? Just by exposing you to that. To go beyond that and to choose you to life by faith and to conform to it, just demonstrates that love most powerfully. But note carefully the remainder of the section here. We go in the second half of verse 2, down through to verse 5. Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now, is this just an ancient record detached from you and me by centuries? And is the context of the culture so very foreign to us that we just can't really see anything here? Or is there something pictured here that is as important to you and me as it has been in any other generation? And I say you can see it clearly here. Think of the imagery here. The hill country, the jackals of the desert. You might be able to picture in your mind, especially if you've been to Israel, this terrain. And if you've ever seen one of the straggly coyotes we have around here, then I think you can perhaps imagine a jackal of the desert. There's been a particularly ugly coyote wandering around the hilltop area recently, and the news has been reporting on that. And uh, the fact that it's the hilltop area and it's an ugly-looking jackal just providentially happened to fit in with the report this week and, and the message here. But just imagine... If this verdant area, by the purpose and will of God, was reduced to a trackless desert, and the jackal was more frequently seen than any human. It's hard to do, because we love this area, and we, we love its greenery, and we love the wildlife that are a part of it. But imagine if the area where you live was left to itself by God and abandoned by men and left to grow wildly. What that would be like. Now, this is a picture. This is what the Lord did to, to the, 
the area where Edom dwelt, but it's a picture. And I can't adequately express to you the force of these words, beloved. The Lord says that he less than loved Esau. That is, didn't choose to love Esau. And we call this a a negative rather than a positive hatred. He's not talking here about actually implementing anything upon them as much as just leaving them to themselves. Leaving them, leaving Edom to his sin and to his lusts. Leaving him profane. I myself, says the Lord, laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert by not doing anything to change his circumstances. And God did this not so much by direct action, but by taking no positive action in Esau's behalf. But the point is that God is declaring his love and divine election because outside of that that election, there is only a vast and hostile wilderness for the sinner. That's all there is. As Stock puts it, another commentator, they, the ones unchosen and therefore hated, are identifiable by their sad condition because they've been left to themselves. Wilhelmus Abrekel, a Dutch minister, puts it this way. Since man is so abominable within and without, God is therefore against him. God's holiness is against him, necessitating the casting away of this venomous vermin. There is God's majesty to crush him, God's love to hate him, God's goodness to ruin him, God's justice to condemn him, and God's omnipotence to destroy this monstrosity. God's heart, God's face, God's hand. Yes, all that is God is against him. Since his soul cannot die and his body will be resurrected after death, he will be forever subject to the unbearable wrath of God. Oh, how dreadful it will be to fall into the hands of a living God. And since God is against him, also all that which is in heaven and upon earth is against him. The angels, sun, moon, stars, stormy winds, water, fire, man and beast. Yes, everything is against him. Nowhere is there a hiding place for him, nor is there help or refuge. We hate to think in those terms about what it is to be lost. But that's what the Lord is conveying here. You ask, how do I love you? I didn't leave you to that. I didn't leave you to yourself. I didn't leave you under the just judgment of my righteousness. But I called you. I chose you to myself. And he says, that's the emblem of the testimony of my love for you. You, my beloved elect, can see my love for you by your blessings. And so it is with his people in every generation. And I just pray that the the Lord will allow the full force of this truth to reach your heart this morning. 
You have not been left to your lost estate. With God and all that is his mounted against you. But out of an undeserved love, he's chosen you to something much different. Where all things work together for your good. He's called you to a place where he and all that is his serves you. That's why John says in 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is because it did not know him. Now, I have to wind this down, but... The objects of such questions should not be, how do you love us? But of the believer's heart, the question should be searching their own hearts and asking, how do I earnestly and sincerely respond to this great love? Not, how do you love me or how you've ever shown me love, but how have I ever shown you love? How can I lovingly serve you who has served me so lovingly? In any land and under any conditions, the elect know the blessing of God, and it makes them rich, according to Proverbs 10.22. That's why you find Paul and Silas, their backs unjustly laid open, their feet chafing in stocks, stuck away in a prison like criminals, singing psalms. And praying. They're physically in the prison at Philippi, but they're spiritually enjoying the still waters and the green pastures of Zion. Why? Because God chose to love them and to call them out of that world. And it's also why you find King Ahab depressed and weeping in his palace, with his face turned towards the wall and weeping because he can't have the vineyard. And he's doing that because he's lying lost in the wilderness of his sins. And even though he's in a palace, he can't draw anything from that to comfort and console him. He needs more. He has to have more. He has to have more satisfaction of self. And so he's lost in that state. Now, as you sit here this morning, the Lord is glorifying himself by his love toward you who are his elect and by his absence of love towards those who are content in their sin. They remain, beloved, in a state of rebellion, and the nations rage and the people plot and connive against him. But here, this is personified in the picture of Edom. Edom, or Esau's descendants, might say, we've been overrun, but we're going to prevail in the end. The Lord says, no, you're not. You're going to say, we rebuild, I'm going to tear it down brick by brick. Now, the immediate context had to do with the nation of Israel and the descendants of Esau called Edom. But I want to close by asking Tyler to look outside the door, would you? Can you tell us, is God working out there? See that in the fifth verse? I'm doing this so that you will know that I am the God who works beyond the borders 
of Israel. So is God at work here among us? Yes, he is. And we thank him for it. But he's also at work out there. And that means two things. Judgment or redemption. And he sets us out into the world to be those who bring the truth of his love to the world. And then we leave it to him to do the choosing. He says, this one have I loved, and this one I've left to him or herself. He's working out there, by, even by leaving the world to itself under judgment, as much as he's working in the hearts of you and me by grace and faith. So now, as we proceed from here, and I'll try to make this as quick as I can, as we proceed from here, the questions are going to turn over to, all right, I'm not any longer entertaining that question about whether I love you or not. I've answered that thoroughly. And you, can't, you can see very clearly I love you. Now, how do you love me? What kind of sacrifices do you bring to me? You complain about the sacrifices you bring. My question is, what kind of sacrifices? How do you come to me? With what kind of art do you come to me? How do you give to the work of the Lord? How do you approach the service of God, the sacraments of God? How do you do that? And that's what these questions are going to bring forward as we move forward. And they're going to penetrate to the heart if God uses that, his word that way. And we pray he will. And I pray together we can grow in grace through this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for its power, for the way that you use it, Lord. Father, um, I hope all of us who believe are just humbled in heart this morning as we think about the fact that we have heard you say to us, I love you. And Lord, we've heard that, that message, we've believed it, and it's changed our lives and everything about our lives. Lord, we thank you for not leaving us to the wilderness and the jackals, but rather, Lord, redeeming us bringing us beside still waters and into green pastures by your grace. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who does not have their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and is wondering, how do I know that God loves me? Help them to see that by being here right now and hearing that the message of the gospel is God's proclamation, I do love you that they will fall repentantly, seeking forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ and find out what it means to bask in the fullness of that gracious love. Father, be merciful. Work in our midst. Work in the hearts of us all as we take our way, make our way through this prophecy. We ask it in Jesus' name, that name which is above every name, the name of our Redeemer, 